Hey, good morning to everyone. Merry Christmas to you. <clears throat> Woke up with a lot of gratitude in my heart. Um, thankful so much that God came and thankful for this church. It's my 11th Christmas with this church and what I know and what I've come to believe about the incarnation and the mission of Jesus and God coming into the world. You have strengthened all of these beliefs in me and how, how it lives out in the world. Have you ever thought like why Bethlehem? Like of all the places in the Bible, of all the places in those times where a baby could be born, why Bethlehem? Because sometimes when we read the Bible, we like skip over towns and cities and we don't really take time to think about the influence of those places or, or what made those places who they were. But why Bethlehem? Because if you wanted to come to the world around that time and to have like immediate impact, Bethlehem probably isn't the place you would come. Jerusalem was a place you would come. A place with greater significance and more power. Bethlehem was a small little town. It was... There weren't many people who lived there, a lot of rural people, a lot of shepherds who lived there. It wasn't really a center of influence at all. So why Bethlehem? And then we stereotype places too, right? Like, I mean, if you hear of somebody who's a country singer and they grew up in Nashville, you're like, well, of course they're a country singer. They grew up in Nashville. Somebody went into acting and they're from L.A. And you're like, yeah, that, that fits right. But we do it the other way, too. That sometimes we think, How? I can't believe that person grew up to be successful. I mean, they, they grew up in Milan or they grew up in Arkansas or something like that. All right. <clears throat> totally joking. Uh, just seeing if you're with me this morning. But we stereotype places. But why Bethlehem? Uh, Bethlehem was a place with a lot of shepherds. Bethlehem was a town where a lot of sheep and lambs would be brought to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's a good chance in Luke chapter 2 when you have shepherds who come to Jesus that they weren't just any ordinary shepherds. They were Passover shepherds who were taking care of lambs that would be brought to Jerusalem to die to, be, to, to, to atone for the sins of people. So Bethlehem was a significant town in some kind of ways, but most people, when you look at Bethlehem, it, it just wasn't a place of much power or influence. But hundreds of years before Jesus, Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2, prophesied about Bethlehem. He said, but you, Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem uh, Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins from of old and from ancient times. And open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 2, and here's how the story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, how the story of the birth of Jesus goes. That after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Now, I want to hang on right there, all right? Because we don't know who the Magi were. There's a lot of confusion about this. Multiple, I mean, you read any theologian or scholar, they land in different places of who the Magi were. Were they wise men? Are these Persian priests? I think we all can agree that they were Gentiles. They're from far away. They're not Israelites. They're not the people of God, but there's a star that lets them know where to go. But if you read the story, they come to Jerusalem. It's like the star just kind of pointed them in a direction, not to a specific location. They end up in Jerusalem, and there they ask, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Where's the Messiah? Which means that they either didn't know the Bible or they didn't know the Bible very well. So they come to Jerusalem to ask, where's this king who is born? And the, the last question they asked there in verse 2 is, we saw his star when it rose, or the statement, and we have come, we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the, peop all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. So Herod doesn't know where the Messiah is supposed to be born either. 
So now he's calling together the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the, the scholars, the scribes, the, the Bible seminary professors, the preachers, the pastors, all the Church of Christ kids who were in the 66 club, who by the age of five could quote all 66 books of the Bible. Like anybody who knows the answer to this question, he's asking them. And it's like the chief priests and these teachers didn't have to sit around and deliberate or pull up Google search to find where's the Messiah supposed to be born. They know it. Herod asked them a question, and their response is, Bethlehem. And they quote Micah 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem. Herod sends them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may also go and worship him. Uh, just a couple of months ago, I was in Bethlehem with, with a few of you. We were at the Church of the Nativity, and there's the cave in the Church of the Nativity. I have it up here on the screen, and just being there, I mean, seeing the picture doesn't do justice at all. And you go into this church, and there's steps, kind of like this, and the steps lead down to a small door. So imagine crowds of tourists trying to go down steps through a small door. If you're claustrophobic, this would have driven you nuts. And now what we have to worry about in the 21st century, it's not just crowds trying to get through a small door, it's crowds with selfie sticks trying to get through a small door, right? Have you ever wanted to take someone's selfie stick and just do a Bo Jackson over your knee? You know, hand a Merry Christmas, I love you, Jesus loves you. Um, we, get, we get through this door down into this cave where many believe this is where Jesus was born. Now here's the cool thing when you travel to Israel. That may not be the exact location in Bethlehem where Jesus was born, but where I was standing was within a few hundred yards of where Jesus was born, of where Joseph and Mary were, of where King David was anointed, of where some other significant events in the Bible happened. And we're down in this cave, and there are a lot of other tourists down there. And our tour guide, Jack, he came over and he was like, I have a surprise for you. And he walked us into this little hallway right next to this cave where people go and they lay presents and they kneel in prayer. And we're over in this little hallway and Jack's like, I know your group likes to sing, so lead them in a Christmas song. And he's, he's talking to me. <laughs> lead them in a song. And Jack put me on the spot. I mean, for one, I, I don't really like to especially lead singing. But when you put me on the spot, I could not think of a song that, that goes with the birth of Jesus. I was just, I was brain dead in the moment. I almost started singing Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, right there. <laughs> right next to the Church of the Nativity. It was, and then Judy Shockley, or Judy Lillard's son-in-law, began to sing Silent Night. And people joined in. And we're there, what many people think is the birthplace of Jesus, singing Silent Night. It was so moving. Kip, you would have loved it. Because you get a group who knows how to sing a cappella in a small little place with good acoustics and four-part harmony breaks out. It's a beautiful thing. There were Russians and Asians and other tour groups who stopped what they were doing. Because I was a little concerned that they're going to get frustrated with us because you only have a couple of minutes down there and here's this group and they're going to sing. People started videoing and joining in this song of Silent Night. We walked out of that church and we went to a store in Bethlehem, a, a store owned by Christians. And around 100 years ago in Bethlehem, there were probably 80% of the population were Christians. And now it's down to like 10 or 15%. And we were in this store where some people, this is a great place to buy gifts and nativity sets and all stuff. That, I mean, 
awesome like wood carvings. My parents have shopped there every time they've gone to Israel. So we spent a lot of time there. And the owners of this store uh, called Casey and me over to them. And they were just sharing with us the stories of who they are and, and how long they've been there and what they do. And we still stay in touch with Laura to this day. And they shared with us how hard it is to be a Christian in Bethlehem today. The persecution, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And what they were sharing with us is, for 2,000 years, it's been like this. There's been conflict. There's been chaos. And this is what God has stepped into. That God stepped into this years ago. And we sing the song, Silent Night. And I hope we continue to sing the song. But there's that line early on in the song of, All is calm, all is bright. And I think the guy, when he wrote the song, I believe he was out in nature, up on a mountain, when he wrote Silent Night. And for him, it's probably a line that meant a lot to him. But I don't think Joseph or Mary or Jesus, as he reflected back on what that time was like, I don't think most Jews in that time would have said, all is calm, all is bright. It was all, all is chaos. There's a lot of conflict. It wasn't a government shutdown, but it was a government letdown. Like every, they, they were just pressed down. It was a time of deep longing. And that's probably not a phrase they would use. So they're, they're in that time, and it's, it's messy. On your bulletin, I titled this sermon, Messy Christmas. And Sue Cheney came up to me earlier this morning, and she said, you misspelled it. It's supposed to be Merry Christmas, and Sue is just messing with me. But messy's been a word that for the last few years, it's been a word I think about a lot when it comes to, to faith and to Christmas. When it comes to God, and, and for a long time I think I resisted the word because I like to think a lot more about a God who, who ushers in order, not a God who is messy. A God who steps in and immediately fixes everything in our lives, not a God who calls us to join in a mess of redeeming the world. And here's God who stepped into this mess. It's messy. And think about that time when Jesus is born in this little bitty town of Bethlehem. Within just a few months after that, Herod gives an order to kill every baby boy in that town under the age of two. How many baby boys in Bethlehem would it take for the whole community to feel the impact of this loss? One? Maybe there were a few. Maybe a dozen. We're not told a number. We're talking about a community in mourning. And Simeon gets this too in Luke chapter 2. Simeon, who's this great prophet who had been longing for Jesus to come into the world, for God to send a Messiah. Simeon's praying over Jesus, blessing him in verse 34 of Luke 2 and says this. Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Who wants that baby blessing over any of your babies born into the world? Simeon speaking truth into the life and the mission of who Jesus is. God gives gifts, but a lot of times when God gives gifts, they come in unexpected packages, in unexpected ways. That God gives gifts that maybe you don't want, but it's exactly what you need. My parents, when they raised us, I remember we would, we were, every time we would drive to my grandparents for Christmas, they would give us a speech. And the speech was, I don't care if it's grandma or grandpa or aunt and uncle or cousins who give you a gift. When you get the gift, you can be happy about it. You can be excited. You can be thrilled. But you need to go over to whoever gave you that gift and you need to look them in the eye and tell them thank you. 
And my parents taught us that don't just get excited about the gift, but acknowledge who the giver of the gift was. And it can be really easy in the church and in Christianity that like, we want the gifts and we want the blessings that flow without directing our attention and our allegiance to the one who gave it all, the giver of the gifts. And this is what God has stepped into. It's God's nature. So I'm curious for you, is it harder for you to give or to receive? Is it easier for you to give or receive? I asked my kids this week, what's harder to give or receive? And they're like, man, we, it's a lot harder to give. We would much rather receive. Giving can sometimes be hard. Uh, Casey and I, my first ministry is outside of Abilene, Texas, and we were working in this church, and some of our dearest friends also worked in the church, Troy and Bonnie. And there were a lot of times we would drive into this town. We didn't have kids at the time, and we would stay with Troy and Bonnie on Saturdays and in the Sunday afternoon. And a lot of times we spent just in prayer and crying out to God together, the four of us, just asking what God wants of us in our lives and where God wants to lead us and for radical faith. And, and, and there were times when we felt God would speak a word to the four of us. And there was one time we were in, a, in, in this prayer time and we felt as if God told us, next time you get a new or newer vehicle, instead of trading in your car, to give away a car. So Troy and Bonnie, about a year later, they were going to buy a new vehicle for their family. And they called me and they said, hey, you remember that prayer time we had? Well, we're about to get a newer car, so we're going to give away our Suburban. And we started to pray of who God wanted us to give it to. And then we, we found out there was a single woman who lived in St. Angelo who had two children who wasn't going to, it was around Christmas time. She, wasn't, she had nothing to give her kids for Christmas. So they were going to give her a Suburban. And then we decided we were just going to fill the Suburban up with as many gifts as we could buy. And with groceries, it could last them for weeks. And then some of our friends found out what we were doing and they gave us hundred, two hundred, a few hundred dollars so we were able to buy more gifts. We filled up the Suburban with gifts, pulled up to their car, and you should have seen the look and the expression on this woman's face when she was given the vehicle and all these gifts. Now, if I go back, there may be some things I would do differently about that. I, I think if I, if I were to go back, we would give her the car, and then we would give the mom the gifts to give her children, so it's not just us giving the gifts. There may be things I would do differently. But a few years after that, it came time for Casey and I to get a newer vehicle. And we had a car that an older woman had for seven years, and in seven years, she put 11,000 miles on the car. She basically drove it to the grocery store and back. Like they, some, the dealership would call her and say, you need an oil change. And she would say, I only driven 800 miles this year. And they'd say, you still need an oil change. So we only had like 40 or 45,000 miles on this car. And we're going to buy, so we brought a, bought a Honda CRV. And it was our time to give, give away a vehicle. And I began to wrestle in my spirit. Because I knew I could get thousands of dollars by trading in this vehicle. And then I began to do the math of what I could do with the thousands of dollars. How much beef jerky could I buy with this much money, right? <laughs> the, the vacations Casey and I could take. But we found a single mother living in Abilene who had four children who was in need of a vehicle. And we decided to give it to a mediator and this person would give it to the woman so we, we never even met her. Sent her a card, prayed over and and the car went to this family and blessed them for, for a long time. What we learned in that, and what I've learned in other times of life, sometimes giving is very difficult. But giving's never been difficult for God. 
even when it came to sending his own son for God to step into human flesh. This wasn't a a decision God made that was outside of the character of God. This is who God is. That God is the one who loves to dispense gifts and give gifts and to step into a mess. And there's so many things about the Christmas story of God becoming flesh that means a lot to me. Now, the people who were longing when Jesus was born, Jesus didn't just come as a grown man who stepped into the world to set everything right. For 30 years, Jesus walked the earth in the mess before Jesus began to heal and drive out demons and display the power of the kingdom of God and then die and be buried and raised to, raised to life. But what God taught us in this is that God did not just throw a rope down and ask human beings to take hold of it so we could pull us to safety. God threw a rope down and God came down the rope to us. That God didn't just toss down instructions and God didn't just give you a Bible for you to read and hopefully figure out what to do. God sent himself. The Bible points to Jesus more than Jesus points to the Bible. God didn't just give encouragement. He didn't just offer advice. He didn't just give a plan. He stepped into chaos, conflict, and a mess. And this is exactly what God still does in the world today. And this message to me never gets old. A couple things I love about Matthew 2, and I, and I just want to give you these to reflect on this week. Number one is this. It's the first worship service you have in the entire New Testament. And it's a worship service that doesn't take place in a synagogue. It's a worship service that takes place at the feet of a baby. And it's the Magi. In Matthew 2, 11, the Magi come and they find Jesus. They follow the star. And when they see Jesus, they bow down and they, they worship him. Who taught you how to worship? I mean, someone, someone taught you, right? Someone taught us how to fold our hands when we pray or bow our heads or close our eyes or hold hands sometimes. Someone taught us that whenever you sing a song that mentions the word standing, you have to stand or it's a sin. But if it's a song that talks about lifting hands or bowing a knee or clapping, then you just ignore those, all right? It's just about your heart being right with God. But if it, if it says stand, you got to stand. I mean, someone, someone taught us these things. When I lived in East Texas, my dad's first preaching job, it was a smaller church. And I remember in that church, there were, there were a few Wednesday nights when we would have a Timothy class for the guys. Some of you may remember this. The girls would go and do their girl class, and the guys would do their guy class. And we're elementary age at this time. And, and what we were taught for weeks was, like, how do you do things in the worship service? So we were taught how, not just how to lead singing, but how to move your hand. We were taught how to do opening prayers and closing prayers, and we were taught formulas and, and proper ways to stand, and, and we were given responsibility in that church too. We, would, we, didn't just, we weren't just taught these things. We, were, we had to sign up to do these things in church. And I don't know what the girls were taught over in their class, uh, but they were taught something too. And may, maybe there were things about Jesus and spiritual formation that were taught in those classes. I just don't remember those things. It's a church that taught me so much about the gospel. But what I remember from the class is that we spent weeks talking about when to worship and how to worship and not really focusing on who to worship. And doesn't this often happen sometimes? That many times we have focused more on the when and the how of we worship than the who we worship. And we can get the when right and even the how right and go through the motions and totally miss out on God. But here are the magi, the first worship scene you have in the Bible. And these outsiders come to baby Jesus and they get worship right. 
Now, sometimes in the Bible, sometimes we think, see things that the Bible says, and sometimes we learn from what the Bible doesn't say. Because one, one thing I love about this story is that the Magi come and they worship Jesus, but who do they not worship? And they don't bow a knee to King Herod earlier in chapter 2. They do bow a knee to baby Jesus, but they don't bow or pay homage to King Herod. And every single day, you and I are faced with the decisions of saying yes to Jesus, but also saying no to everything else. Of bowing a knee to Jesus, but also making decisions not to bow our knees to other things. Whether it's people, emotions, whatever they may be. Swearing an allegiance to Jesus, but also making sure we're not swearing allegiance to anything else. So Matthew 2 teaches us about worship, and Matthew 2 also teaches us about something else. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, you have the Great Commission. Where Jesus teaches the church and says, you are going to be sent to all the nations of the world. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it's detailed just a little more where it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the gospel is going to go all throughout the world. But Matthew's gospel begins with something else. Matthew's gospel begins with all of the nations coming to Jesus at his birth. It's not the scribes and teachers of the law and the people who know the Bible really well who come to the birth of Jesus to worship him. It's these outsiders. It's the magi, astrologers, whoever they were. So the birth of Jesus is like this magnet that brings people from all over the world to, to him. Jesus is the magnet and Jesus is also the launching pad. He's the one who draws all people to himself and he is the one who equips those who come to him to be sent into the world for a mission. So go to Jesus, come to Jesus for confession and for salvation and transformation and for healing. But when you come to Jesus, expect Jesus at some point to give you an assignment of what it means to be light in a dark world. When I was in Jerusalem, we visited two churches, a lot of churches, two specific ones I want to talk about this morning. One in Jerusalem, we visited the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is one of two places where most people believe this is where Jesus, the crucifixion and the burial took place. And the church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's owned by a few different churches. So Orthodox, Roman Catholics, a few different groups have ownership of this place. And decisions about this church can't be made unless everyone agrees on that. Can you imagine different groups of Christians trying to agree on something? Even today, there's a Muslim who has the key to open the door because they can't even agree on that. And there's been conflict in this church for years. You can go and you can read stories about it. Blood has been shed over who has ownership to this church. And today, there's a lot of conflict. I remember talking about this. If you go to the next picture, at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's a ladder up there. And that ladder has not been moved for over 200 years because the people who claim ownership to this church cannot decide on what to do with the ladder. But six miles from that church in Bethlehem, that's in Jerusalem, six miles away is the church of the nativity where many believe this is where Jesus was born. And the church of the nativity also have multiple churches Christian groups who have ownership of this church. But as our guide walked us through the church of the nativity, the God was pointing out and showing us ways where those churches get along just fine. 
and they make decisions, and there seems to be great unity. And I can't help but be a little confused that six miles away, some of the same churches have ownership of one place, and some of those same groups have ownership of another place, yet they live it out in two different ways. Now, the books have been written, research. I don't want to make this too simplistic, all right? There are a lot of reasons and nuances and complexity around why people get along at one and why people don't get along at the other. But I just want to focus on the Church of the Nativity just for a moment, that maybe the reason people can get along a little better, maybe this is just the optimist in me, is I want to believe that there's something about a baby that can soften the hearts of people. And there's something about God stepping into life, into human life as a baby, that can melt a heart and unite people like nothing else can. Jesus is the great uniter. Jesus unites, not sororities and fraternities. Jesus unites, not ethnicities. Jesus unites, not geography. Jesus is the one who unites not political lines or party lines. Jesus is the one that brings all people together. And when we come to Jesus, we give our acknowledgement to God, and as we acknowledge who God is, we align our hearts with who God is. We acknowledge who God is, and as we acknowledge who God is, we align our hearts with who God is. And we worship Jesus. When we worship Jesus for who he is, know that it's going to lead to an assignment of who Jesus wants you to be in the world. Acknowledgement should lead to alignment. Worship of Jesus should lead to mission in the world of what it means to be Jesus. So I want to ask elders and prayer leaders to go where you are to pray today. This will be the last Sunday I'm with you next Sunday. Casey and I are traveling to Texas uh, for the week and we're visiting both of our families. And there's some of you who have some big decisions to make at the end of this year. That there may be someone in here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus or you've never confessed Jesus as Lord and you've never been baptized and maybe it's time for you to make a decision before you move into a new year of giving your allegiance and your life to Jesus who can save you, do something for you that you never can do for yourself. And there's some of you who need to take seriously and reflect on this year and emotions that you've been carrying with you and maybe sin in your life and forms of brokenness and you need to make a decision now that there's some things that do not need to go with you into a new year. You need to leave them where they are. And can you trust those in the presence of God today? The people around this room and the elders are here to receive you for prayer. If there's anything we can do for you that you want to bring in front of this church, please come down front. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.